Thanks, Amy. All right. Can you believe we are on sermon number 47? There's a strange comfort developing with the Gospel of Mark, and I'm afraid that when it's done, I'm going to have to think of something else to preach on. But uh, um, we're continuing with our series. Uh, This is week two. I told you there was a two-part sermon. Danger and Success Part 1 was last week about the rich young ruler. This week, it's Danger and Success Part 2. We're focusing on the success of the disciples. So um, here's what I'll say in, in the way of introduction. So Christians... particularly American Christians, we can really become obsessed with being successful in following Jesus. In fact, there's a very popular verse that we use to talk about successfully following Jesus, and it is Philippians 4.13, and it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Anybody ever heard that verse? Just two of you. Okay, good. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) See, this verse is seen as some sort of motivational tool to deploy at our beckoning for a successful Christian life. There's no room for failure in Philippians 4.13. I can fail at all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not in there. It says, I can do all things. In other words, if you're not doing all things, then clearly Christ is not strengthening you. Just a little determination, a little help from God, And you can achieve anything, success, and all of its blessings. I can do all things through Christ. I bet you the rich young ruler would have loved Philippians 4.13 had it been written yet. Don't you think? He probably would have loved the way we interpret it today, many of us. Politicians quote it. Football players put it like underneath their eye, you know, Philippians 4.13. Soccer players don't do it because most of them don't believe in God, but still there's... (laughs) So there's a story. I was watching football with a friend of mine about three years ago, and one of the players on the—I'm not allowed to talk about specific teams, Megan says, because the Bucs haven't won yet this year. So I'll talk about a general game I was watching, and one of the players scored a touchdown, and uh, everybody was going crazy, and he had Philippians 4.13, and and my friend was excited, and I was just shaking my head. I was just so frustrated. He says, Joe, what's wrong? Why the long face? We just scored. I said, that's just bad theology. I mean, you know, I'm watching football. I want my football to have good theology. They shouldn't put, I can do all things through Christ when it comes to football, right? Here's what they should put on the bottom. I mean, it's a little bit longer, but win or lose, score, get tackled. Even in total failure, I will endure because my strength is from Christ. (laughs) That is successful, good theology. It's not about accomplishment or success, this verse. It's about contentment. Paul says, look, I've been in need and I've had plenty. I've been facing death and I was thriving. And he outlines these uh, several different examples of extremes in his life. And he says, through all of it, Christ strengthened me and I was able to endure it. The word do actually means I can endure. Do means be strong. I can be strong as Christ strengthens me. So you can see this verse is not about success, even though we like to use it that way. In the last few weeks, Jesus has been teaching that successful human spirituality is a myth. Remember, he says, come as a baby. There's no successful spirituality in a baby. 
He's helpless. Last week in Danger of Success Part 1, the rich young ruler thought he was successful. This week the disciples think they are successful. Let's look at the passage. Mark chapter 10, verse 23 to 31. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So if you think some of those portions of that passage sound familiar, you're right. Jesus is teaching the same thing over and over again with several different object lessons. So we're looking at the history of this passage. I want to talk about an outline for you historically how Jewish people in this time saw success and failure. I want to talk about the wealthy and the righteous. See, to understand the richness of this passage, it is critical for us to understand who Jesus is really calling rich. The rich ruler from last week was revered, he was respected, and clearly the hand of Jehovah had to be on his life, right? That's how it worked. Good Jews believed wealth was a sign of favor. Jehovah's hand was upon your life because you were a solid temple worshiper. You kept the law perfectly. Isn't that what the rich young ruler said? Jesus said, keep the commandments. He says, well, I've done those perfectly since my bar mitzvah. And Jesus says, well, you got one thing left. Sell everything and leave the town that loves you. See, culturally, everyone celebrated wealth as a sign of devout, successful Jewish temple worship. And the system was set up in such a way, if you'll get this, that the more money you had, the better Jew you could be. You could buy the best animals for sacrifice, the lambs without blemish, As a matter of fact, not only could you buy the best animals for sacrifice, you could do extra sacrifices. And when it came to feast day celebrations, there were no scrimping. It was the best caterers money could buy. The the most people you could bring in, your family, your friends, and the richer you got, the more resources you had to please God with your worship. And what made it even more incredible was the more wealthy you were, the more your worship was displayed for everyone to see. It was this tremendous cycle upward for the rich. The more money they had, the more worship they got. The temple priests, they loved the rich because they benefited financially from rich people when they came to worship. They would give priority on the schedule for rich people, special seating, VIP treatment, the whole nine yards. So that's the wealthy and the righteous. That's who Jesus is calling rich. Not necessarily just rich people, but people who are successful spiritually. And wealth was one of the ways it was manifested. But now we have the poor and the sinful. Contrarily, poverty 
was Jehovah's way of pointing out religious failure. God is withholding blessings. Just as wealth symbolized spiritual success, poverty is a revelation of spiritual failure. They were a burden to the temple priests, the poor worshipers. They were tolerated, sometimes even despised as a nuisance because they would take away time to devote to the rich worshipers. They could only buy the worst sacrificial lambs and maybe sometimes not even a lamb. They had to settle for a dove. And the feast celebrations celebrate a feast. They're fighting for their daily bread. Are you hearing some recurring themes maybe from the, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer? Give you, give you this day our daily bread. See, it was a vicious cycle of this religious failure. You can't afford good temple worship, so you languish in public shame and nobody wants to do business with you. You become an outcast. And what some people would do is they would think, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to save up for one good, lavish, public blowout sacrifice and worship. And hopefully, many people will see it, they'll start doing business with me, and it will start to cycle upward. Just like the tradition we have in many places in America that we wear our Sunday bests to church, it's the same concept. That was the burden the poor felt in temple worship. Of course, it always ended up being a waste of money, benefiting the priests, but no blessings would come to the poor, and they're worse off than before they worshipped. So with that in mind, let's talk about this intimidating question that Jesus asked. It's more of a, an, interje- an interjection, but it's, it's really a question. It's a rhetorical question. And Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler has left him visibly shaken, but it has shaken the disciples as well. And there's a deeper dynamic here that Jesus is fighting. Remember how the disciples were turning away babies, just a story before this? Remember that? Well, they didn't turn away the rich young ruler. Why? They felt he was entitled to be having an audience with Jesus. The rich Religious celebrity approaches Jesus. They don't turn him away like the babies. They welcome him. Their default assumption, he's rich and successful as a worshiper. He deserves to have an audience with Jesus. Do you see how this story is clearly tied to the ones about the babies? There's no question. So Jesus turns to his disciples after the rich young ruler leaves sad, and he asks them a direct question. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? Nobody answers. It's a rhetorical question. The ruler story has proven there is no good answer, and the scripture says they were amazed. And here's the word, when when Jesus says, how hard is it for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Here's the, the Greek word, thambeo. It means to astonish, to terrify, and to frighten. That's what the word amazed really means. They were terrified, they were frightened by the question because they knew the answer was not fun. You ever been in a group of people, like maybe in class or somewhere else, where you're asked a question and you experience this awkward silence because nobody wants to answer because everybody knows they don't either know the answer or the answer is going to be kind of indicting of everyone? You ever been in that situation? And you're just hoping, somebody please answer it. (laughs) I'm not going to answer, but maybe somebody... I'm sure they were probably all looking at Peter, the spokesman. Come on, Peter, you got this. You speak up every other time. Why can't you say something here? 
It's just like, by the way, a couple of stories earlier when they were arguing on the way to this particular region. Remember they were arguing about who would be last in heaven and who would be first? Remember that argument? And Jesus says, by the way, what were you talking about back there? And they didn't answer then either. And then he says, what were you talking about? And they said, well, we were talking about who's going to be first in heaven. And Jesus says, well, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You see how this whole teaching area begins and ends with the same lesson? It's not a coincidence. Isn't the scripture beautiful how it is put together? This is why it is impossible to teach the gospel of Mark just in sections and ignore the rest of it. You have to go this way. You want someone, anyone to speak up, take the pressure off. Even Peter is quiet, but then let's look at the spiritual part of this story. I'm going to talk about how it's impossible with man. The first section I want to talk about is the anatomy of a camel. Don't worry, I'm not going to really talk about the anatomy of a camel. But Jesus asked this question again, and he leaves out the rich part. There's a difference in the second question. The first one is, how hard is it for the rich to get to the kingdom of heaven? Nobody answers, and he expands it. Guys, how hard is it to get to the kingdom of heaven? Leaving out the rich, he's expanded the question to everyone, the rich, the poor, everyone. The answer is so frightening to speak that what they do, instead of answering because they know what the answer is, they ask a question. Well, then who could enter the kingdom of heaven? You ever done that? Where somebody asks you a question you don't want to answer, and you answer them with a question? Like, for example, my wife, Joe, did you take out the garbage? I don't know, Laura, did you take out the garbage? That means no, I didn't take out the garbage. Joe, did you clean the garage net? No, did you? That's really what they do here. Well, if he can't enter the kingdom of heaven, then who could, Jesus? Jesus uses a well-known Jewish idiom here that any good Jew with any exposure to the Talmud and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees would know. It's one that appears in many Jewish writings, and what it would do is it would use whatever the largest animal is in that region and say, that animal going through the needle of an eye, and that would say that what we're describing is something that is impossible. In some regions, they would say elephant. Here in this region, there's no elephants, but there is camels. And so Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through a needle of an eye. He didn't make this up. This was a well-known Jewish idiom. So they know exactly what he's saying. He's making it very clear. It's a hyperbolic, absurd visual expressing this truth. Guys, you're right. No one can enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible with man. It's hopeless. Don't even try. But then he follows up, right? But with God, all things are possible. It's a, re- it's a reiteration of the idea of coming as a baby with no human reliance. And their, their thought is, you know, wait a minute. We remember what you told the rich young ruler. You said, all right, you've kept the law. Sell all your goods. Abandon them. Leave your family and come follow me. See, this is where the danger and success for the disciples is manifested. Their spiritual pride comes out. And Peter speaks, you told the rich young ruler to give up everything and follow you. Well, we've all done that, which is true to a degree. And you can probably just see them all nodding, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. We've done it all. We've, we've given up everything and we're following you. They're grasping at self-righteous straws. You said that's what he had to do. Well, we've done it, so we're good, right? Yeah, Jesus, we did a good job. 
See, they weren't content with just being with Jesus. They wanted more. They wanted to be declared righteous because of what they had done in following Jesus. They wanted Jesus to, to say, yes, that's right. You have succeeded. Where the rich young ruler failed, you didn't. You are better than the rich young ruler. Congratulations, disciples. You, because of your effort in following me, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what they wanted to hear, just like the rich young ruler wanted to hear the same thing. See, they wanted to be rich too. They believed the choice to give up wealth and follow Jesus should be rewarded. That's what Jesus said, right? But remember, they've been arguing about who will be first. They reject unfit babies. They embrace this rich young ruler in a contrast to rejecting the babies. They still have this addiction to the Pharisee system of self-reliance and personal success and performance to earn heaven. But then Jesus adds something else. He talks about riches to come. They say, look, we've done this. We've followed everyone, or we've given up everything, and we followed you. I'll look at a verse in Ephesians 2.7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is describing riches to come. He says, you think you've sacrificed so much giving up your money and your family, leaving your riches and your brothers and your sisters and your parents? You think you've done such a great thing? You see the contrast here with how they're being selfish with Jesus when they wouldn't let the babies come. They were content to keep Jesus all for themselves. And Jesus says, there's no special reward for being the first to follow me. It was an only choice you had. It was the rational choice considering this. You're going to gain far more than you ever gave up. In land, earthly treasure, brothers and sisters, as a matter of fact, as being a part of my church, you will get a hundredfold what you gave up. This is Jesus referencing the church. The greatest earthly blessing from following Jesus is not riches and wealth. It is our brothers and sisters from all nations. That's what the land and the brothers and the sisters all means. Jesus says, you think you gave up a lot. What you inherit as being part of the church is a hundredfold more than what you could have ever kept for yourself. Those who look to keep their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. It's the same concept. For many, church family is far more fulfilling than our earthly family could ever dream of being, isn't it? Imagine how good church family is going to be in heaven. This is what Jesus is talking about in the riches to come. And then Jesus repeats the lesson he taught in chapter 9 when they're arguing about who would be first in the kingdom of heaven. It's a powerful completion of this pericope, this teaching area, these last five or six sermons. The teaching that started with their conversation on the road about who would be first. He says, the last will be first and the first shall be last. Just because you were the first to follow me doesn't mean you're special. Matter of fact, the last to follow me is probably more special than you. That's hard stuff. The disciples are probably hearing some things, again, that they don't like. So let's look at the personal section. I'm going to teach you today how to be poor while rich. Now, some of you might say, well, I, I can just skip this personal uh, section because I'm not rich, so I'm good either way. I'm poor. 
I can be poor while I'm poor. So let me explain what this passage is about. This is the Sunday sermon preview this week. The gospel isn't a reward for the spiritually successful. On the contrary, it's the only hope for all who are complete, abject, spiritual failures. Amen? Isn't that good? Remember I said last week that this this story of the rich young ruler was really a condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lays out a straw man and says, okay, you want to get righteousness by the law? It's not just that you can't commit adultery. You can't even look at a woman. It's not just that you can't steal. You can't even covet. And he expands what the real standard of the law is. Here's the key to what he's teaching right here. He's talking about being poor in spirit. See, the gospel isn't the secret sauce in success in business or marriage or recovery. Did you hear what I said? Or personal purity. All the gospel is is the hope of the desperate failures in all those areas. Putting any hope in any of those things results in what? The loss of your soul. You're trying to keep your life. The gospel rescues us from hopeless, desperate failures. And those of us who realize, man, I got no shot at the kingdom. But like the disciples, you know, we understand the gospel and and they had heard it, so they understood it to a certain degree. We know that Jesus has died for our sins. Let's just establish that. But somehow, we still find a way to revert to revert to admiring our spiritual success. We kind of honor celebrity pastors. We honor musicians, Christian musicians. We honor authors. And then we even subconsciously project spiritual success to each other without even realizing it. But that's why being poor in spirit is so important. I want to put this verse up. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the part about the rich not going to heaven is the part that grabs everyone's attention in this passage, right? Boy, woe is the rich. Bad news for them. Aha, you better give me money because you're rich. You're not going to heaven. The passage has been abused politically and emotionally for centuries as a way to beat rich people up over the head with guilt, shame, and fear. See, this is what happens when you teach the gospel of Mark out of context, right? Oh, the rich can't get dead. Well, you don't really know what the rich means unless you read the rich young ruler. And you don't really know what the rich young ruler story is about unless you read the part about them denying babies. And you know what the denying babies part is about unless you read the part about them arguing who's going to be first in heaven. Jesus isn't condemning the rich. He's teaching the virtue of a desperate heart. In Judaism, at this particular time, a rich person would not be desperate. They have all the resources they need to earn heaven, particularly through temple worship. There's no desperation there. The poor, they would be desperate. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another part from the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Look at these two verses. Psalm 51, 17. My sa- this is David. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart you, God, will not hate. That's a good one. And David writes another good one in Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You see what poor in spirit looks like? 
Do you want to know if you're truly poor in spirit? Would you like to leave here today knowing if you're poor in spirit and you're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Well, I'm going to try to teach you that. I believe it manifests itself, according to today's passage, in two specific ways. Contentment and generosity. Contentment and generosity. So let's define them for you. Let's look at contentment first. Remember I opened up with Philippians 4.13 by how Paul said, I'll be content no matter what circumstances I face. Look what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Remember the theory that I told you that I kind of like that some people kind of ascribe to that the rich young ruler was Paul? He would really know this lesson. Even if it wasn't him, Paul would know this because he would be considered a rich religious success. Human contentment is incredibly elusive, isn't it? Because when we do experience some sort of earthly success of any kind, we want more of it. We want to sustain that success. Money, happy family, love, respect, no matter how much of these things we get, we always naturally want more of them, don't we? It's the reason four of the Ten Commandments are centered around actions that arise from being discontented. Did you realize that? Four of them are about coveting, which is having its roots in discontentment, adultery, stealing, coveting your neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, his livestock, or anything that is your neighbor's. The problem is contentment is only made possible not by achievement, but contentment is only made possible by desperation. Look, I'll just be glad if we get out of this with that. Then I'll be content. Then I'll be satisfied because otherwise I'm screwed. Because desperation, particularly spirit, any kind of desperation, but we're talking about spiritual desperation. You know what happens when you experience desperation? It changes your core values tremendously, doesn't it? What you thought was important before you were desperate changes dramatically on the other side of desperation, including how you see worldly riches. We become more interested, don't we, in eternal things when we have escaped desperation. We're much more interested in those than we are earthly things. See, that's the key to contentment. When we believe the promise that Jesus makes today in the passage about being rewarded a hundredfold with eternal treasure is actually true. Because if we don't believe it's true, then of course, the natural response would be to hang on to what we can see and what we can feel and what we can experience, right? If we don't believe the promise of riches to come, then we're going to hang on tight to what we can see. But the moment we start to realize, wow, there is an eternity, the things of the world grow strangely dim. See, this is what the rich young ruler lacked. And the disciples, they did not know how to be desperate, and therefore they did not know how to be content. But then I want to talk about the second ingredient, generosity. Remember I explained the disciples did not want to be generous with Jesus, right? They rejected the babies. They were annoyed whenever Gentile followers would come along and get you know, healed, and, Jesus, and they would say, Jesus, why are you spending time with these Gentiles? He says, let them come. I've come to seek and save that which is lost, both of the Jew and the Greek. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. 
As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let me explain something. Contentment without surprising generosity isn't really contentment. It's self-preservation. If you're content, but you're not generous with that which you are content to have, then you're really trying to preserve it, aren't you? And what does Jesus say about those who try to preserve their life? They lose it. So contentment without generosity isn't contentment. It's selfishness. It's self-preservation. Supernatural contentment will always produce generous hearts. Always. See, contentment... True contentment frees us from the dangers of hoping in earthly or spiritual success at our own hands. And what contentment does, true contentment, is it makes us loosen our grip on those things we have labeled as success. See, that is why, as one of our core values, that surprising generosity will always be a natural occurring result of those who are striving to live the grace life. You can't say you're trying to live the grace life without contentment and generosity. And as Jesus teaches us, this passage is providing us a foolproof test of our souls. Are they desperate? And if they are, they'll be content with salvation and they'll be generous. So I have a couple of, remember how Jesus asked some really hard questions that nobody in the room wanted to answer? I've got some for you, sorry. And as he said to the rich young ruler, he says, if you give up everything, you will be able to lay up for yourselves or cherish treasures in heaven. He said that to the rich young ruler, if you truly have kingdom values. So here's the questions. Are you a soul that understands your own spiritual desperation? Have you, in fact, come to Jesus as a helpless baby? God, I am so overwhelmed with my deficiency. I am helpless, I am hopeless, I come to you as a baby who is completely vulnerable, please save me. That's the first question I'm asking you about. Are you a soul that understands what it means to come to Jesus as a baby? Second question, are you a soul who knows that the riches of heaven are greater than any riches you can amass here on earth? I mean, I'm not saying you can't have riches on earth. I have some, not a lot, but I got some that I really like. The question is, do I value the riches in heaven more than I value the ones I have on earth? I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about any form of earthly human success. Because if you really do understand that the riches of heaven are far greater than anything you can amass on earth, you will be content and you will be surprisingly generous. You see, one can't exist without the other. Well, I give away a lot. Well, generosity without contentment is human success, isn't it? 
But if your motivation for generosity is, I'm content with whatever I have or I don't have. If I lost it all and I have Jesus, I'm good. Without both, without both, your hope is still in earthly human success. You just might be the rich that Jesus was talking about in this passage. It might be, if you feel that that might be a danger, today might be the day to come to Jesus as a baby once again. Heavenly Dad, this, this area of teaching has been so challenging. <clears throat> it's made us uncomfortable. You've given us a lot of questions that we didn't want to answer out loud. <laughs> but Father, we're thankful for the gift that you give us of desperation when we recognize our sinfulness and just how far away from achieving the kingdom of heaven we would ever dream of being. And so we come to you as babies, helpless babies. We ask that you would make us, as Paul was describing in Philippians 4.13, make us content. Make us look at and value the earthly or the heavenly treasures more than the earthly ones. Lord, give us supernatural contentment that spawns surprising generosity. Lord, we thank you so much that you have, through the cross, given us connection to you that is not contingent upon our own success, but upon your power over the grave. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, for those of you that are at home, I appreciate that. Uh, just I keep saying this every week, but I want you to know that the pastor and shepherd team is working very diligently on plans for families in our Grace Life community. Uh, we've got some really exciting things coming up. Uh, we're working on a couple business side of things. We'll keep you posted on that. If you need anything during the week, please let us know. We got your back. We love you guys. Have a great week.